The Grim Drive podcast explores mental health through the lens of professional sports and athletes. Pro athletes come forward more and more with stories about their mental health journey, what they have endured, and how they manage to push through, reflecting a mental health stigma that continues to be reduced. Pro athletes also leverage mindset to achieve peak performance, as well as representing and often driving elements of popular culture through the use of social media, technology, and personal branding. This places athletes front and center as role models for people of all ages, giving them a platform to reach many and deliver important information, including information about mental health. Welcome to the Grim Drive Podcast, where we explore mental health through the lens of professional sports and athletes. My name is Jonathan Busfield. I'm here, as always, with my co-host, John Cuna. And John, today, before we get into the uh, the featured athlete and the featured uh, you know mental health topic, I just want to get some feedback from you on what do you think so far after your six episodes of the Grim Drive Podcast? Uh, certainly been a blast, honestly. That's been the first thing I was thinking of when I was trying to like just look back at what we've done so far. It's been so much fun, more than I was expecting. Um, to be able to get into some of these topics through the lens of athletics, um, just because I think that the tide is totally turned and people are now more open and talking about some of this stuff. And so to have like another platform to be able to do this has been really great. I think the reception that we've gotten from you guys. So thanks everyone for tuning in and giving us some feedback has been really positive and been talking like this is such a gap and this is such a creative way to talk about these things. So sort of just good confirmation that we're on the right track. And um, it's been really nice to be able to talk about these things, not in a, a room with a singular person. I think that's been a kind of a nice thing to be able to like share some of our experiences and some of our things that we've been able to like what we do and um, with a greater population of people, hopefully, obviously, to try to reach as many people as possible. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that the, having more of these has been great. I think the first few, thanks for everyone staying patient with us. The first few were like, you know, we're trying to catch our rhythm. And I feel yeah. like the last couple of episodes have been really great. Um, and we felt a little bit more like just comfortable with this. And I'm really excited to dive into the um, to the episode for today on Robin Leonard and um, talking a little bit about a whole host of different things. But it's just, I think for me, it's been really great to just have a place, talk about these things um, and sort of shoot some ideas around. So, you know, I think my, my biggest takeaway has just been, this has been a real, this has been a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's been a, a lot more fun than I expected. I expected it to be enjoyable and a, yeah. a good experience and a learning experience for sure, but it's definitely been, been more fun than I expected. I mean, I think you make some good points about having this as a forum to talk about these things. I mean, we, we've worked with individual clients for a very long time. We have <laughs> a lot of experience with that, but we knew at some point it was probably important for us to try to reach a larger audience with, with this helpful information. You know, we're not trying to make money. We're not going for notoriety here. No. Uh, that's like the last thing I want. It's right. not, not my cup of tea, uh, but I do want to help people. Like, we both want that a lot. Uh, and this is a good way to do it. We're hoping that a lot of people, um, you know, find out this, find this information, get access to this podcast or watch it on YouTube and are able to gain something, even if they just gain one helpful thing per episode. I think that's worth a huge it. win in my book yeah. um, because a lot more people can ac access it than just doing one-on-one -on -one, uh, you know, outpatient therapy or coaching like we do on, on a regular basis. Uh, so I agree with you on that. You know, I think one of my takeaways is just how much – how much information is out there already about this stuff? Like how many, how many athletes are talking about it? Um, how many other people on social media are trying to create things, whether it's on Instagram or, or uh, mostly on Instagram, some on Facebook, but um, trying to create, you know, hashtags or followings that really just shine a light on mental yeah. health. And, and in particular, male mental health, I think, is something we're passionate about. Um, you know, finding more of those, I think, has been amazing because I didn't know that many existed. And also, we're trying to formulate connections between some of these groups and some of these missions mm -hmm. so that we can, you know, join forces or try to collaborate. And, and I think joining forces makes those things more likely to happen, which is what we're after. Yeah. So that's been really cool to see. I think that the link between ep uh, athletes that we focus on each episode has kind of been interesting. I feel like there's always some sort of link between one episode and one athlete we focused on and then another one. Uh, I also think you know, there's been more links between athletes in, in general in these leagues that I didn't expect to see when we yeah. do this research. We see so-and-so talk to so-and-so about this or so-and-so talk to another athlete and, and got feedback. And that's really awesome to see as well. The depth of the stories has been great. You know, finding, um, you know, when doing research for these episodes, just seeing 
the level of depth uh, of what these people have gone through, what these athletes have gone through and how they talk about it um, and how their, their teammates and coaches and teams have been involved to some degree has been great to see as well. I think another takeaway for me has been, uh, you know, the absence of, of the impact of the absence of sports on the collect on the collective mental health. I wouldn't compare it to like, you know, the more serious aspects of COVID or, or, you know, um, you know, what's going on in terms of physical health, like, you know, people who have COVID or people have lost loved ones due to COVID. It's obviously not compared to that, but I think we know how important distraction is as a coping mechanism. I think we talk about how it's too often used, but it is still an important distraction, uh, important method of coping, you know, distracting ourselves in different and healthy ways. And sports is one of the main ways we do that. So mm-hmm. I think that's to have that taken away for different periods or to have it change and not hear actual fans in the stands and different little elements like that. I've been surprised at how much that's affected me. And I think it's affected a lot of other people. Um, and I think rooting for a team unites people. You know, mm-hmm. sometimes it divides people in, in, a, <laughs> in a sports way. But I think mostly it unites people. Um, brings people together to 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 join for a common cause, same kind of thing that they're going for. And I think that's always a good thing. So that's one thing that stood out to me is that that I think that's been missed. Yeah. And I think when things start to you know continue to get back to normal, that's one of the the biggest things I'm looking forward to is hearing people in the stands mm. uh, and just having sports be back where they need to be. You know. Yeah, I agree. And and you made one really great point about you know when we're doing a lot of these you know researching these athletes and the things that they've been going through and learning about their stories and you know like you said hearing more about like so and so talking to so and so and getting support and and things like that i think that that's been such a it's such a great point because it's happening more and more even now and mm-hmm. i think before you know even 10 years ago you would you wouldn't have as these athletes wouldn't have as many opportunities of like oh who can i talk to about these different things or who else might be going through this yeah. stuff it was just you felt siloed and we're going to get into that about robert leonard and some of the stuff that he went through um but now there are ample examples of people coming out and talking about what their the pieces are and for mm-hmm. these professional athletes it's 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 comforting to be able to go to another professional athlete yeah. who can highly relate to what their scenario is as being sort of someone in the spotlight having lots of pressure on them as an athlete and being able to talk openly about this type of stuff so that was definitely that's a great point i think and it's it's something we're hoping to see more of and I, quite frankly in the last six months maybe it's just because i've been doing more research in yeah, this at all yeah. but i've just been name after name after name after name of athletes coming out talking about their own mental health and their struggles and how they're getting support and it's just it's it's wonderful to see yeah and, you, and we've seen how change you know often starts with one person who's willing to take a massive chance or mm-hmm. a couple people yeah and you've definitely seen that happen across the board in different sports and i think you're seeing the domino effect of that happen and and that's so important because now you know obviously i think the most important thing is that these people are uh, have access to care and that they're more likely to have a healthy lifestyle which is mm-hmm. the most important thing but even after that, I think, you know, I think it makes them better athletes. I think it makes them better teammates. I think it makes the product on the field or the court of the ice better to watch as a fan. I think it endears the athletes to the fans even more. It makes more of an emotional connection. Big time. Which ultimately, I think no one, there's no loss from that, right? And no. I think um, we're starting to see when athletes speak out, even, I mean, we'll get into this, um, you know, more in the, I think the next episode, but even when, uh, you know, when people in the media sort of come after them for mm. being weak or for coming out, you see like the, you know, the the wagon circle. Uh, <laughs> and I don't think that would have happened a long time ago. And that's to me a great sign because you can you can tell that now if you're someone that tells you you got to uh, hold it all in, you got to be stoic, you, you can't show weakness, you're going to get attacked by the people who are like, that's ridiculous and we're past that. So that, what, Yeah, they're, the, they're the exception, not the rule anymore. Absolutely. It's great it, to and see. that was not the case for, for a very long time, maybe even five, three, five years ago. So mm-hmm. um so we are going to focus on Robin Lehner and and PTSD today. I think there's a kind of a connection between this episode and our last episode where we did Josh Gordon. You know, Josh Gordon, I don't think I saw, I didn't see anything about him being diagnosed with PTSD, but we know he had trauma in his childhood. And we know that trauma is very complicated and it often leads to substance use. Uh, and so we could have flipped these episodes, really. I mean, mm-hmm. we, when we look at, at Josh Gordon, we focus more on the substance abuse side of things. With Robin Lehner, I think substance abuse was at the core of what sort of led to him getting help. But PTSD is really what um, what the main issue is, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll get to that in a little bit. Did you know anything about about uh, Robin Lehner before we did this? No, yeah. no, same thing. I mean, sort of similar to what most most of it is. I've done some digging, and you knew. I mean, he made some. He had some pretty outstanding games against the Bruins. So really, the only context I have is him as just a good competitor yeah. against the Bees. But, um, you know, I knew he bounced around from a bunch of different places. I, you know, we'll, we'll speak about the reputation, but, you know, he had a reputation of being like hot and cold. Um, 
you know, without any context of what was going, what mm-hmm. was going on, I know that that, um, you know, one of my takeaways, which I'll go into in a minute was, was about that. Um, but, you know, I knew he, one of the things I knew from beforehand was that he didn't start playing hockey until kind of late, you know, and I mean late, it was like 10 or 11 years old or something like that. Um, you know, as you know, with you here, most, most professional athletes, you're like, they started skating in like two years old or three years old. Yeah. So that, that kind of stood out to me as yep. one thing that was, that was different, but yeah, I didn't know much about him. I remember when we started, um, prepping to figure out which athletes who want to cover with the podcast in general, I think you brought him up and I didn't yeah. even know about that story. And then shortly after that, I think one of my friends who I told we were, you know, told about the podcast I was upcoming mentioned to look at look at this guy and look mm-hmm. at his story. Um, I think his main article was maybe in the Athletic, which Athletic, we've yeah. read for, as prep for this. But I read that I, I had no idea. I really didn't know who he was um, up until this point. So um, really fascinating to learn about his story and, and uh, you know how complicated it is. So we'll do a quick um, quick bio on Robin Lehner. He's a Swedish professional hockey goalie. Currently plays for the Vegas Golden Knights in the NHL. He has also played previously with the Ottawa Senators, Buffalo Sabers, New York Islanders, and Chicago Blackhawks. He was selected in the second round of the 2009 NHL draft by the Senators. In 2019, he won the NHL's William M. Jennings Trophy for fewest goals allowed, and the Bill Masterton Memorial Trophy for perseverance, sportsmanship and dedication to the sport of hockey, while also being named as a finalist for the Vesna Trophy, which is the league's most outstanding goaltender. A couple of random facts about Robin Lehner. Like you said, John, he didn't start playing hockey until he was 10. I think he played soccer yeah. before. Yep. That's that's very late in the game for yeah. someone who becomes a pro athlete to, mm-hmm. to start their, their sport, their focus sport. Um, at age 19, he became the youngest Swedish hockey goaltender to play in the NHL, which is pretty amazing, even, especially with that 10-year-old thing. Mm-hmm. Nine years, Nine he years. goes from never playing the sport to the youngest goalie from his country to ever play in the NHL. Mm-hmm. He's a fan of melodic death metal, and in particular, <laughs> a Swedish band called In Flames, uh, which originate from his hometown of Gothenburg, and the band even influenced the design on, on his mask. Um I had a buddy in college who was really into metal. He was a big, big Pantera fan, mm-hmm. and uh, and anything produced by Rick Rubin. You, you a Pantera fan at all? No, not not, no? not so much. No. Yeah, not, not me either. I tried to get into it, but just didn't <laughs> didn't take. You know, um, so we talked about how the the, the band uh, In Flames influenced the design of his mask. He also has a, a hashtag same here on his mask, mm-hmm. which is, um, you know, ties into a uh, his charitable organization that I think he's affiliated with and and, and helps out with. Uh, same here is a nonprofit founded by uh, by a 15 year pro sports executive named I think it's Eric Cusson or Cusson I'm not sure how to pronounce it so I apologize to him mm-hmm. for that. Um, the, the goal of of same here is to change the global conversation through mental health advocacy and ultimately just continue to uh, reduce the stigma. I think um, that pro sports executive Eric also uh, struggled with some with past trauma and yeah. PTSD and and went through his own experience and it motivated him to really dedicate his life moving forward to this cause. And so it's really cool to see Robin Lehner um, attached with that. So we put the the link to that organization, uh, that nonprofit organization in the show notes as well, in case people want to take a look, want to donate. They're also on Instagram. They got, yeah. They're got on every social Everywhere. media platform. They really got some cool things going. I reached yeah. out to them to see if we can, we can help in any way. So that, that's uh, some, t- you know, the, a few random facts about Robin Lehner and his bio. We're going to get into the, the player spot now a little bit um, in terms of our takeaways. And I just want to go through a little bit to start before I kick it to you, John, in terms of, you know, starting with diagnosis with Robin Lehner, I think it's a complicated situation, you know, probably one of the more complicated ones we've covered so yeah. far. You know, sometimes, usually mental health is more complicated than just one thing, right? Um, but but oftentimes people may, might have one diagnosis and other things kind of going on. He has a lot of, a lot of different mm-hmm. things. And so his diagnosis is, uh, as he describes it, is bipolar, I think he said bipolar one, mm-hmm. um, uh, as well as ADHD and PTSD with trauma uh, and suicidal ideation. So I'm going to get into this. A lot of jargon I just threw. Um, probably got flagged for that. But bi- So bipolar, um, I think probably used to be call- called manic depression. Um, but bipolar is basically where people sort of go, you know, they fluctuate from two ends of the spectrum, right? Mm-hmm. They're either, you know... Um, really, really down and depressed, or they cycle to what's called um, uh, periods of mania or hypomania. And basically what that means is you're kind of like totally keyed up, tons of energy, think mm-hmm. you can take on the world, yeah. delusions of grandeur. Invincible. Invincible, right? Invincibility. And I think bipolar gets, I think people, oh, you know, sort of in, you know, non-clinicians tend to overthink bipolar. Like if someone's angry and then they're sad, it's like they're bipolar. <laughs> it's not what it is. If you've ever seen yeah. a person who actually has bipolar, it's kind of scary. It really is much, much different than people yeah. think. When someone's in a manic state, 
uh, it's mania. They, they mm-hmm. are really uh, you would you would spot it right away. It's very very noticeable. It's not mm-hmm. just someone who's a little bit pissed off. Um, right. It's it's very different than that. So so he has bipolar, um, and ADHD and PTSD. And those we also said you know at, at points he's been he's had suicidal ideation, which is, essentially means you know a person is having um, either active or passive thoughts about harming themselves, about taking their own life. Um, so w- when he is at that point, obviously things have really gotten to a bad point. And he even says, you know, his bipolar came from p- the from his PTSD. PTSD. It came from the trauma that he went through when he was a uh, when he was a kid. He didn't really get into much detail, and we're probably not going to get into detail around trauma anyway, in mm-hmm. terms of specific someone's specific trauma experience. Um, because, but clearly, you know, it was it was a childhood of of abuse. He said abuse, addiction, and mental illness. Yeah, sounds a little bit like what Josh Gordon uh, mm-hmm. maybe went through, like you know, neglect and and just a, a childhood around that kind of stuff, and so. The substance abuse came later. He mentioned that that kind of started more in 2015 after a concussion, I think, is when it got worse. Yep. Um, he was drinking, you know, a case of beer a day to cope. Mm-hmm. Um, and the path to getting help for him started with a panic attack mid-game in 2018, like mm-hmm. Kevin Love. So we, we see how these yeah. these uh, episodes and these topics kind of weave together a little bit. Um, it was curious that they sent him home after that, the panic. Uh, yeah. I was kind of confused. That stood by, out to me, too. Yeah, we don't know enough about that. But and they that had, like, was a medical... Of, doctor to say that that was they wanted to get him out and i was yeah i i, I was curious about that uh, yeah that that stood out to me because i i don't think i would have recommended that personally I, I think you know when someone goes through a panic attack they you need to probe a little bit more to figure out what's going on make sure they're safe yeah and clearly in this scenario right they didn't know that he was cl- he was suicidal sure. uh and right. that that is not someone you want to send home no, when that's happening you got, yeah right. you need to really screen them and find out what's going on we don't know enough about what really mm-hmm. happened there but so shortly after he i think he went home and he told his wife right away thankfully that yeah. he had that kind of moment of clarity where he said i need to get help she was obviously very supportive uh, he went to de- uh, detox and rehab shortly after that incident and i guess his, his detox was pretty bad he went through bad. like a three-week detox period where one of the worst they had seen apparently and it sound they didn't use this term but it sounded like he had what's called delirium tremens which is where you're basically when you're an alcoholic if you when you, we talked about this in the Josh Gordon episode with weed, but with mm-hmm. weed and alcohol, especially like you know alcoholics who drink during all day for every day for right. many days in a row, you're you're shutting off uh, different cells in the brain that are responsible for cleaning cleaning out your brain right. um, while you sleep to regenerate and make you well rested. Right. And if if you're drinking every day, you're robbing your brain of that day after day after day, and eventually it has a ripple effect, mm-hmm. uh, sort of boomerang effect, where when you get sober your brain is essentially trying to catch up with the lost sleep it's had right. for a long time. And you end up having essentially dreams while you're awake. And it's yeah. a very, it's called delirium tremens. It's a very scary thing. Um, and alcohol recovery, believe it or not, it's important for people listening to know that it, I think it's the only drug that when you're getting sober from it, you can actually die if you yeah. don't have a, a structured treatment a, approach. A trained detox. Yeah. yeah. Um, whereas with other drugs, you know, um, you might feel like death, but you're, you know, you're at risk of dying. Yeah. Alcohol really is, you uh, you're yeah. at risk. So, that was just a huge takeaway for me that that diagnosis is very complicated, you know? Yeah, that was my big, honestly, that was one of my takeaways as well was that a, a lot of times, you know, and even, and even in our, the way that we set up our podcast, it's sort of like athlete and one thing. And I think that that's not always the case. I'd say majority of the time, there's multitude of things that are going on for different yeah. people. And his complex diagnosis was something that really stood out to me and it's and it's hard especially with with trauma um and there's been the last decade has been sort of like explosive in the world of trauma there's mm-hmm. been lots more research and pieces like that and there's been a lot of um comorbidities which are sort of like d- dual diagnosis or other things that might be going on um and a lot of the diagnosis like ADHD a lot of people were diagnosed with ADHD but it was actually trauma mm-hmm. or you know vice versa so um that was really something that stood out to me you know in terms of his his treatment with this one of the things you brought up you know he to be going through all of these different things and I, he speaks about that like moment of clarity where he like talked to his his wife I, I saw like an enormous amount of strength for him not only to have that moment but then when he was in detox when his his time was up to go home he actually said I want to stay longer mm-hmm. um, to, to continue to get more yeah. help which I thought was just you know I think it's easy to this this sort of speaks to my my first my my, my biggest takeaway but it's it sort of speaks to um, you know we 
you have to sort of overcome the demonization of behavior for people. Um, and I think a lot of people attack the behavior. And I think for him to be able to overcome some of that stuff and then be able to say, like, I need help, get help. And then I need to continue getting help. Yeah. Um, I thought was just a really big sign of strength. And I think that's part of the reason why he's been able to continue to do work. And he's been now he's been a huge outspoken advocate. But um, the complex diagnosis thing, I think, is hard. I think when you're working with someone individually, um, you know, you have to get into sort of like triage mode almost of like, where are we where are we treating? And what's the most important thing to be treating? Mm -hmm. um, so that was definitely the thing that you know, one of the things that like really stood out to me when he was like going through his laundry list of things that he was dealing with, I um, couldn't help but have just like empathy and um, sort of like sadness for him of having all of those things that were going on and clearly going on for a long period of time. And he had to just sit with that mm -hmm. for a while until mm -hmm. he finally reached a breaking point and then luckily reached out rather than acted on some of his suicidal ideation, which was obviously, which was great. Um, and, um, you know, I think the the trauma piece, which again, like you, like you said, we're never going to sort of like blast people out there. He doesn't really speak too much about specifics of what what had happened, but um, you know, I think it was. I, I think that especially him being sort of t outspoken about trauma was really helpful because I think it happens more often for people and for have have another like talking head and figurehead for someone to talk about this was just really important. And I and you saw after he came out and talked about this again, another sort of like wave of people coming out and talking about mm -hmm. about their own trauma and their own experience. So just another advocate for this. Um, Absolutely. was really great. Yeah. No, you talk about triage. I think that's, that is a really important concept in terms of like having an order of operations to how you attack the mental health issues that are right. going on because you have to, you have to be selective about which one you start with. And there are priorities, you know, if he's, you know, if he's suicidal right. and he is, uh, you know, an alcoholic to the level where he really does need detox, those things have to come first. Right. You, know, you have to get it, make sure a person's safe so they're not going to harm themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, that would would require an inpatient stay of some kind. If they're also an alcoholic to that level, they need an inpatient detox. So it's got to be a detox right. facility where they can get clean. Mm -hmm. If you can't, if you're not getting clean and you're still at risk of harming yourself, there's no point in working on the other things. You got to get that stuff kind of situated first, and that's clearly what they did. After that, then you then you obviously, I think, as part of that, once they get him sober. They, it sounded like they made the bipolar diagnosis. So yeah. like at that point, they're going to get him with bipolar treatment. You, you, there really is no you know, outpatient behavioral treatment that's going to treat the manic side of that. That's medication. Medication. They need yeah. medication. So, mm -hmm. so his team at that point is going to get him on some kind of an, probably an antipsychotic, I would guess. I don't mm -hmm. know. But that would handle the manic side so that those manic episodes would probably stop happening or be far more likely to stop happening. Mm-hmm. And then they're going to, um, you know, that gets him at least stable. So he's sober now. He's not suicidal. Yeah. The, the manic side of bipolar is stable. And that, I would guess, he says he was like, he felt like someone who was broken and need to be put back together. Because what happens is once you get, you take care of those things, which is obviously the, the biggest key. Yeah. Now he's very vulnerable. Right. But those have been the things that have been, and this is why bipolar, I think, can, can, be caused by trauma, right? right? It's like the brain's way of almost fracturing and kind of surviving, yeah. right? right? So as is substance use, right? It's about numbing. So once you remove all the biggest threats, mm -hmm. he's now very vulnerable. He's safer, but he's very vulnerable, right. and which is why it's a key that he's in a, a treatment program like that right. because they have to kind of unpack that stuff and help put him back together with his help. And I think that's where you start to get into the PT, the trauma, the past trauma, learning how to work through that, understand it better, and recover from that. And then ADHD probably comes far after that. Yeah, but, definitely. You know, probably is not even in the same probably, conversation. As no, this kind of that's stuff. just that ADHD for him is probably more just education. But like you said, yes. if you can't if you can't get to a stable, safe place, you can't address the PTSD and the trauma. Right. It's right. not. It's going to be too reactive. You're going to get right back Correct. into the same yeah. cycles and same patterns and kind of go through that. You have to get to a place where you are even able to accept the information or the truth that you've been numbing yourself from trying to admit for through substances or through whatever. Yeah. Uh, if you can't get that sort of squared away first, it, it, treatment's really not going to work. Absolutely. And I think the, the another thing that kind of relates to this is the trajectory of mental health issues or like the timeline, you know, uh, the, the cumulative timeline and the kind of ticking time bomb effect of mental health issues. I think a lot of times what what's, might seem like a sudden mental health crisis, usually there's signs much earlier. And he mm -hmm. even says something. I think he said... Um, you know, he suffered a panic attack between periods of a game on March 9th, or sorry, March 29th, 2018. But then he says, uh, quote, I think looking back, it definitely was uh, too much too soon. And he said, 
there's a lot of things I can pinpoint that I could have gotten help earlier because there were signs there all along, right? So I think we we see that a lot where it it might seem like it came out of nowhere, but usually there's there's at least months, probably years of of red flags and signs mm-hmm. that a person really needs some help, which is why it's so key for family members and friends to to learn about this stuff too because you know, all it takes is one person to recognize some of those things to yeah. really intervene. Although it did sound like his wife was trying to get him yeah. help for a very long time and he yeah. admits that he refused and, and that's a huge problem too. That right. I, say. I think ultimately too, it's, you know, you can have everybody around you saying you need help, but it has to come from that person to sort of come to that realization yeah. moment where they're like, I need to go yeah. and, and yeah. get some help. But I think that it speaks to the like bubble that guys keep themselves in totally right? this like this 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 fear of being vulnerable right we have that it completely back it's, yeah. it's 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 yeah. brutal we have it completely backwards it's you know vulnerability is weakness and silence is strength and it's literally the exact opposite yeah. it is yep. far more difficult to be vulnerable and to admit what is going on for you than it is to just stay silent because yeah. we I mean, he's a perfect example. Another example of someone who stayed silent about what they were going through and it yep. led to it led to substance abuse, detox, you know, things spiraling out of control. And the moment he opens up, he's is vulnerable, seeks help, he's on a better path now and is able to function better. I mean, I, I don't know how many examples we I need know, to, you know, keep doing it for you know, hopefully we're seeing more of this and that's part of the reason why we're doing this podcast is like to, to give more and more examples for people in the hopes that there's one of you guys listening out there that's like, huh, wow, maybe I do do that. And they are able to notice those red flags a little exactly. bit sooner exactly. before they pick up that bottle or they pick yep. up those drugs or whatever and say like, wow, maybe this is something that's going on for me too. And I can, maybe, maybe I should be seeking some help as well. So, um, that, that's a get just, a, just another hope, just, just a great point you made. No, to- totally. I mean, I agree with you. I think the more guys like him and, and people and you know athletes in general male female and in between that, that we cover the more they talk out about out about this stuff and, and they show that vulnerability and they show that, that not only is this possible but it's better and it's helpful yeah the more I think people are going to see these experiences and say, all right, I don't have to follow that old men's playbook right. you know I, that that is outdated and yeah. clearly not helpful no um, so I, I think you're right on that sense so and that kind of brings me to one one point I wanted to ask you a question about. I mean, I think that the the main takeaway on this point is like mental versus physical illness. And he says, you know, I'm not ashamed to say I'm mentally ill, but that doesn't mean I'm mentally weak. Yeah. And I think that was a great quote. Great and quote. I think that's a great way to put it. And my question to you, John, which which I've been pondering since I think yesterday I texted you that this was like, as yeah. I was doing research for this episode, it was like kind of stuck in my head for a little while. You know, the question is like, how did the whole thing start where mental illness was viewed as weakness, whereas physical health was never really viewed that way, or was it? You know, it's just very confusing to me to, to you know, look back and figure out, like, where, where were the seeds of that? You know, what, what caused it? You know, what, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it comes from a lack of confidence and ego, uh, pr- yep. primarily. I think it's, you know, to, to admit that you're, you know, I think, the, honestly, too, I think the, one of the biggest takeaways is, or one of the biggest points, I think, is that for physical treatment, there's a path right? There was a very clear path. If you sprained your ankle or broke your ankle, there's a treatment path kind of moving forward. And for mental illness, there wasn't. And you're not supposed to talk about it. Right. And I think that that sort of put that that just umbrella of discomfort around it. Mm-hmm. And like, we don't talk about this. And it's, you know, you're weak if you have this. And so, and I think that that sort of like bled into everything and then no one was able to talk about it. And then you see, and we'll get into this in the next, in the next podcast talking about Dak Prescott, but you would see people like little like almost like whack-a-mole you'd see someone come up and say something about mental illness and then they'd be like no that's you're weak and you'd be hit down and of course those were the examples that people were seeing as what would happen if i did talk about that mm-hmm. but if someone was saying you know i tore my hamstring like okay great here, here's what you're gonna do yeah right here's here's some support around that here's what we're gonna do to take care of you and if you oh i've i've got ptsd or i've got trauma or i've got this it was like oh we don't want to deal with that and you shouldn't be talking about that and i think that that over just decades and decades of, of repetition is what led to be where we are now. Yeah, so you're, you're kind of touching on two things. I think it sounds like it's it's the stigma yeah. that has been reducing, but was big for a big uh, big for a large time, and then it's the lack of understanding, right? Yeah. So people, you know, a lack of knowledge often leads to to a fear or judgment. People fear yeah. what they don't understand, right? right? So that's part of it. Um, we didn't understand mental health or emotions for a very long time, uh, which it clearly led to collective judgment uh, yep. or avoidance. I think that's a big one, right? Mm-hmm. And then the stigma, you know, it's interesting. I don't, I don't, more, you know, in terms of a more modern, more recent reason that stigma formed or was strengthened, I would guess is is sort of the 
the changing landscape of the family. I think as things have be- families have become less paternal, mm-hmm. you know, um, more of a balanced family, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, less kind of driven by some stoic male head of house, typically mm-hmm. in terms of how it used to be viewed. I think that's one thing that's helped because yeah. for a long time. It, it, that probably didn't help the stigma that was kind of forming uh, yeah. uh, in terms of guys, you know, uh, a man having to be the sole breadwinner and having right. to like, you know, be the head of household and mm-hmm. be strong and all that kind of, that didn't help. <laughs> I think if you go back even farther, I, I would say for a long, uh, you know, a long time, we're talking tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years. I think being dominant and not showing weakness was a major factor or threat to one's place in society or survival for a very long time. So I would guess, like, if you try to figure out where it originated from, mm-hmm. I'm guessing that's probably where. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, more modern times, it's it's the lack of understanding about mental health that's just prevented it from switching quicker, I think. Right. But it's an interesting question. It's something we're going to explore more. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe we'll cover it in a different episode or we'll just – because I'm fascinated by it. I think yeah. it's, and I think it's important – to continue to reduce the stigma, it's important to recognize where it came from. Yeah. I think that will help people educate people to, okay, let's try to figure out how we got here in the first place mm-hmm. uh, so that we can try to undo this a little bit and do it a different way. Yeah, yeah, not repeat the same mistakes that got us here. Exactly, exactly. So a couple other takeaways I had. You know, One was the the sort of uh, real life over sports and, and the, and the re- ramifications of him getting help. I think on the business side, you know, I th- I think it was maybe him or his age. No, he's. I think Robin Lehner actually says that. Uh, quote: It hasn't been a smooth ride. Uh, no, I think it's his lawyer maybe said it, but it hasn't been a smooth ride. And Lehner's openness has come with major repercussions professionally. Uh, that was according to his agent. So um, I have a question on that. So for for you, John, if we're really looking to reduce the stigma, right, to get the stigma gone, to have physical and mental health viewed the same, is it fair to allow teams to view mental illness? as a possible reason to stay away from a player in the same way they would stay away from a player who's physical, you know, has a physical exam and shows chronic knee issues. What do you think? Yeah, this is one that I that I struggle with because certainly teams do steer away from people with like physical history of of, you know, physical injuries or they've, you know, they've torn their hamstring or they've got knee surgery or stuff like that and that might give a second guess to that. However, the approach to that athlete around the physical side is here are the things that we can do to support you while you're here to make sure that you're healthy and able to perform. Mm-hmm. And that same level of thought and processes is not, to my understanding, is not for the mental side, or the mental illness yeah. side. So, the awareness. The awareness yeah, of yeah, it. Yeah. And, and so I think it's twofold. I think it's one, it's that there's they might not know. Uh, athletes are sort of conditioned to not talk about that type of stuff because for a long time, like I talked about, like the demonization of it has been like not not have the freedom to talk about mm-hmm. those things. I don't think it's fair because for a lot of the things that people are going through, treatment is treatment is very simple if you are able to access it, and teams should be able to provide that. I argue that if you're able to treat that mental side for that that athlete, they'll actually, if the treatment is done appropriately, they'll actually be a better athlete for the team if they're able to receive mm-hmm. that that level of mm-hmm. support um you know there's extenuating circumstances i'm sure for everything there's always going to be outliers for everything but i don't think it's fair and this kind of speaks to a broader sense too i think that um you know with more understanding and more conversation around mental health one of my fears is that we're going to start to turn to sort of like weaponizing mental health and it's something that I, I worry about um, of saying like, well, I don't – it's sort of a way for a team or anyone to sort of discount someone because they have mental illness. And I think that that starts to swing the pendulum back towards the other direction where we're trying to come away from. Um, and so I, I that's one thing that I worry about. Um is just saying like, well, you know, they've they've got PTSD, so we don't want them in goodbye. And mm-hmm. I, I think that it gives the wrong message um, to the person. It, it sort of probably validates fears for that athlete already of like, I'm different, I'm broken, I'm bad. And then to have a team say, we don't want you because of that, rather than how might we be able to support you while you're here on mm-hmm. this team. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's just a different way of thinking about it. So I, I don't necessarily think it's fair. I think it just needs to be a part of the conversation as you're evaluating someone just like you would if they're coming off of a back surgery or a knee surgery yeah. to have that same level of conversation. That, that was sort of my my biggest one. I, I, I'm still sort of like going through how I how I feel about it, but I think that it's there's no room for conversation around it yet, and it's not talked about the same as like like I said about 
coming off of a surgery for an ankle or a knee. It's not talked about in the same way as just like, this is something that they're going with and here's how we can support them or not. It's yep. like, oh, the, I don't know how I feel about that. And let's just, let's just, let's just leave it alone mm-hmm. and not even talk about it. That's what I think I have the most problem with. Yeah. You make some good points. I think this is definitely an interesting issue and it, it requires a lot more thought because it's yeah. kind of evolving and it's hard to fully understand. I think with some difficult issues that the tendency is to want to create sort of an all or nothing black or white sort right. of solution. And it's rarely like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think these things require nuance and sometimes are case by case kind of specific in terms of how you approach it. I think you, you bring up some good points because I think the on the medical, physical medical side, they probably have teams of people for each, oh. for, you know, for each professional sports team. They have a team of doctors and, and yep. medical professionals who are informed about every possible diagnosis. So they know when a physical issue is something that can be rehabbed versus when it can't. Right. I don't think they have that level of no. care on the mental health side. So nope. they're, they're not probably aware enough yet right. that they're getting there, but not aware enough yet of, you know, how, what mental health issues mean what and how that could impact, uh, you know, his, his standing as a player. Because I think a lot of times compared to physical issues, I think mental health issues have a greater chance to be improved. I would say that when yep. it comes to like, you know, you can't really compare them to chronic knee issues. Cause I think the mental health issues probably have a better chance of being rehabbed, of being changed, and maybe even making them a better player than they were before. Uh, exactly right? right. So that that is a key factor, I think, that maybe differentiates them a little bit. Um, I also think it's a fine line. I'm hesitant to say that it's like we can never we can never say that a person's mental health is a disclusionary criteria. Right. I don't think exactly. it should be most of the time, but right. I'm hesitant to say. I think it's a, it's really risky to say that it it we just can never use that. Mm-hmm. I think there's examples of where you have to because a person just can't because of what they're struggling with mentally. You know, there was one basketball player who I think he had you know, such vicious anxiety and panic attacks, he couldn't travel. Mm-hmm. He couldn't travel on planes. I think maybe it was a fear of flying. I can't remember exactly what it was. I think he was a basketball player coming out of college. I want to say his name was Royce something. I can't remember. Maybe we'll look into that more. Yeah. But he couldn't get on planes. Uh, and as a, he was drafted in the NBA, I believe, but could not play. And right. I think he plays in Canada now, maybe because travel's easier. Again, yeah. I'm speculating. I don't know a lot of the details, but that's an example of where it's not his fault, but also he can't, you know, if he can't right. do it, then we're not going to put him in a position where he can't do something like that. Yep. And I think there is a very fine line between, you know, to acknowledge that mental health, I think it's important to acknowledge mental health illness is real while not using it as an excuse. Right. That's what I always try to work on with clients is like, you know, I think the example I would give, like if you look at ADHD, right? If someone says, I can't do my homework because I have ADHD, that's using it as an excuse. <laughs> and I would yeah. never allow a client to say that, right? So, so do yeah, I, yeah. right? Whereas if you say ADHD makes it hard to focus, but I adjust to that by doing X, Y, Z. Yep. That is not you. That's acknowledging that it is an impact, mm-hmm. but you're not using it as an excuse. And right. I think we have to be very careful collectively to just anytime someone says I'm taking a mental health day or I'm doing that. Like, yes, it's good for people to take mental health days, but we have to know more about that kind of thing. We have to know the details. Are you know? Are you understanding and addressing the mental health issue, or are you just throwing that out there to, as an excuse for something? Because there's right. a very fine line. I could see it going down that road where, where that could happen, and I. Most importantly, I don't think that helps the, the conversation. That's no. my main focus. Yeah. I don't think that I think that's going to diminish the reality of mental health, mm-hmm. which will f- lift the stigma back up. Right. I don't want that. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's that's what I was sort of saying. Like I worry about it. Like we we have such a bad habit of just staying in one end of the spectrum or the other and like we're really trying to push towards like acceptance and understanding and you know this is something that's affecting a lot of people and i worry that you know it can almost go too far that direction and then just swing back to like we're not gonna talk about it anymore because you know it's too difficult There, there is a way to be you know good about this and stay in the middle and and like you said it's it's something that's real but it's not an excuse right Absolutely. It, you know you wouldn't draft a, a basketball player who is you know a paraplegic or stuck in a wheelchair right, right? that's that's just a reality yes. right and so like the same the same type of stuff there are certainly that's what i was saying before like there are going to be outliers just like everything yes. it's not an yeah. all or nothing thing it yeah. has to but i'm my main point was that it just it has to be a part of the conversation totally and and a lot of the things that people are struggling with are highly treatable yeah and and to both of our points about you can actually make a player better if they are able to get the treatment that they need for whatever might be hindering their abilities. And I think that that is not a conversation that goes into it. I think that, you know, we talked about reputation with Brad Marchand. I feel like reputation is how they, has how most sports teams manage people's mental health. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is a dangerous precedent because reputation is often 
the behavior, but it's not, you know, what are they actually trying it's to not the communicate? Root. It's not yeah. the root. Yep. And I think that that's one of the biggest, that's a big issue that needs to be addressed. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think being informed, having information yeah. is, is key every <laughs> single time, right? We can't just, you know, be on one of the spectrum without being informed as to what are the details of really what's going on. Right. Because I think that it's always key. And I think, you know, we're talking about from a collective standpoint, it's key to, to, to be careful that mental health is used as an excuse. Mm-hmm. Because there is a fine line, but there is a difference, right? Yeah. Um, individually, it's problematic if that happens because just like that ADHD example, if a person, if a client I'm working with uses ADHD as an excuse and says, I can't do my homework because I have ADHD, my main concern with that is that that attitude is going to keep that person stuck. Yeah. And it's not going to help them get better. It's the only reason I care, Mm -hmm. right? If it helped them get better, fine, but it doesn't. It Mm -hmm. keeps them stuck, which is not, we want forward momentum, right? right? Um, And that mentality is probably pervasive, not just with their homework. Right. Correct. Like it's, 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 it's it's all over the place. Correct. Like, oh, I can't do this because of that. Like yes. That that way of thinking is just it's coming out through the through the homework. Absolutely. But it's pervasive in everything that they're doing. Exactly. It's going right. to affect school or work or yeah, relationships. relationships. Absolutely. Yep. So, um, so touching on, on the heels of this kind of point in terms of the impact it had on him professionally, you know, the business side. I mean, um, one meeting he said one meeting in particular was worse yeah. than any other. He was bombarded with questions about why he's a bad person or a bad teammate, and he couldn't say anything. He just took it for hours. Mm-hmm. He says, I was told that I was a bad influence. I had less than one chance, and then I would be buried in the minors, and I would end my career. I was crushed. And he even talks about how that, I mean, that right there made him want to drink. Yep. We talked in about in the Josh Gordon episode about how, you know, teams need to know that, like, criticism endless criticism and labeling and punishment is is going to do the opposite of what you're looking for it's just yeah. going to make that person want to use especially with substance use want to use more right not going to help them get better um this was a little i mean this was like him trying to find a new team to sign right. with but it just shows that we've give, we've tried to be balanced on this we try to give some examples of how teams or leagues are are making some progress and are coming along with their understanding about mental health mm-hmm. but this to me shows the opposite so i think we're we don't want to like, you know, uh, knock the NHL because I think he actually speaks very positively. Highly. The NHL, the, the NHL, yeah, for uh, the NHL, PA, um, the substance abuse uh, program Programs. or track for yep. uh, NHL players. Yeah. He also, like you said, that the Sabres GM, he says, is still supportive to him. Yeah, still checks talk, in with him still. Checks in with not him. Even he's not even on the anymore. team anymore. <laughs> yeah. Right. So that's great. The Islanders team, which he eventually signed with, was very accepting about mm-hmm. his, his situation and understanding. So that is great, I think it, but it does still show that like we have we have a ways to go a little bit. Yeah. Um, there are a lot of teams and a lot of sports executives that have no idea what mental health even means, and they definitely judge it, and they definitely use it as a disclusionary criteria without knowing anything, without an understanding. Yeah, I think the the, the key thing that I would you know I would hope would be you know what are they communicating. What are they trying to communicate through their behavior? And like for for, for guys especially, and, and not just guys, females do this as well. But you know they, because we're not allowed to, you know we we don't have the ability to sort of communicate. Or you uh-huh. know we talked about Kevin Love. Like I learned how to communicate when I was thirty. Yeah. Uh, you know stuff like that. Or Demarcus DeRozan. I can't remember who said it. Demar DeRozan, Demar DeRozan yeah. said it. You know same same level of thing. And so we be we we communicate through our behavior. And so one thing that was one of the ones that stuck that stuck out to me too was that that interview that he talked or that um, that meeting that he talked mm-hmm. about of just like you're a terrible person, you're awful, you're never going to do anything. How is that supposed to help him motivate him yeah. to want to do better? And the the question they should have been asking is why are you you know why are you here? You know yeah. what what happened? What's going on? Yeah. What, are you, what are you trying yeah, to communicate to us? Show some curiosity yeah. to maybe actually show some support yeah. and understanding, like you mentioned. And then okay, well if we have an understanding of what's going on. Then you can make an informed decision of, uh, is this team going to be able to support what you need? Mm-hmm. Rather than just being like, you're a terrible person. Okay, go ahead. Right? Exactly. And like you said, it, it just made him want to drink again. No, totally. And it kind of reminded me of the um, Michael Phelps episode where yeah. that teacher just told him, like, you're never going to announce anything, <laughs> yeah. I think. Right? Was that him? Yeah. Yeah. Where it's like, yeah. who says that? <laughs> I know. I don't know how these people get into <laughs> prominent positions, but it's it's uh, yeah. it's kind of a shame. So on the hockey side, I think we talked about on the business side, the ramifications that, that this had on Robin Lehner. On the hockey side... I think it's also important to to get into that a little bit because you know for him he he came to realize how bipolar disorder affected his play, right? Where he kind of you know says that uh, I had never had a sober season of hockey in my entire career. Yeah. With those manic swings, I could see the pattern. When I was hypomanic and in a good mood, I was a solid goalie. The depressive state, not so much. Mm-hmm. I can definitely see that. Right. Yep. When you're in a manic state, you are keyed up. 
You have confidence that's off the charts. Off the we charts. know confidence plays a huge role in sports. Yep. So you have confidence and you have unlimited energy. I can see how that would make someone really yeah, very uh, effective. You know, excel in that state. Sure. And that's a loss for him because while it was obviously a bad thing for his life to have untreated bipolar disorder, it was helping him in the hockey sense. Right. And so we, we're going to get into this in the next episode about, uh, about recovery from mm-hmm. injury. But this is kind of like a recovery from mental injury. And yep. we're going to talk about that more because, you know, when you have had something that was bad for you, but that helped your your playing career taken away, mm-hmm. there's an adjustment. You have to relearn, yeah. kind of create a new identity on the ice, relearn who you are as a player. And that can sap confidence short term. I think it's why it's important to work with people because it right. can help build that up quicker. And why it's so fearful to, to try. Yes. Yes, absolutely. So he... Um, you know, he says that after he got clean and addressed his mental illness, he was able to to finally love and feel love as a husband and a father, uh, but that the hardest part was getting back to hockey. So I think the, the the key thing on that for me is that like this sort of, I, I kind of think it touches on the, the men's playbook point a little bit because he says along the, the lines of finally being able to love and feel love as a husband and a father, he also said that it finally didn't matter. I was going to rehab for myself and my family. It was the one thing I've done in my life that made me feel like a true man. That to me is like I think <laughs> I think guys fa- often fail to realize that the very thing, the very emotionally vulnerable thing they're avoiding, actually makes you feel like more of a man than any of the BS that you're probably engaging in in terms of trying to act or look powerful. Mm-hmm. The doing the things like being true to yourself, being there for your for your family members, for your spouse, for your kids. There's nothing more manly than that. And I think the reason why is because it's not about masculinity. It's no. nothing to do with with being a man or masculinity. No, you know it, it's about being a good person and mm-hmm. it's about being loving to the people that matter to you in your life and that right. that that has nothing to do with gender right i think that's an, an being important available point. to yeah. them yeah absolutely so um there's a couple other athletes with bipolar you know ben gordon is one i've heard of um delante west, delante west you know, yeah. we might focus on one of those athletes at some point for a specific episode on bipolar um, we wanted to cover trauma and ptsd first and especially because like robin laner has has p uh has bipolar but it was caused by his trauma. So I think right. that's another reason why we wanted to focus on the trauma and PTSD today. Mm-hmm. Um, before we get to the to the uh, more mental health spotlight, a couple other takeaways. His efforts to connect and validate people in the community was really awesome. I think, yeah. you know, he obviously speaks out, and we've dealt with a lot of athletes that speak out um, publicly. I think most athletes also do th- individual kind of stuff, but him especially, you know, he's really made an, an effort to connect with individual fans. Yeah. I mean, I think I've read some stories about oh, people yeah. who – kind of like saw the hashtag same here and like reached out and or, or somehow found a way to reach out to him not expecting anything in return mm-hmm. to have him like connect and really get on their level um I, you can't imagine how impactful that is to a person when, when an athlete and this is why it's we want to shine a light on these athletes because they are really important to a lot of people mm-hmm. and it can make a difference in a lot yeah. of people's lives you know um so same here we talked about that that's that that hashtag it's an expression um which means you know, according to him, I've faced challenges in life too. Those challenges have affected my mental health. It's a sign that we hope will unite the world once and for all, normalize how universal the, uh, the topic of, of mental health yeah. is. And I think um, he mentions how like the demon on his mask sort of represents, mm-hmm. you know, some of the demons that he's dealt with and things like that. So um, I think on that, any other takeaways for you before we get to the mental health spotlight? Those are the big ones for me. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So in terms of PTSD, let's see. I want to go through a little bit, you know, I guess we try not to be too jargony, but uh, we want to go through a little bit of uh, some, some data on PTSD and a little bit of the, the what goes into that diagnosis, just so people kind of know the basics. I think it's, uh, so f- for the data source, we used SAMHSA, which is the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. Uh, they say that more than two-thirds of children reported at least one traumatic event by age 16, which is yeah. pretty staggering. Um, potential, uh, you know, we've talked in the past about how the definition of trauma has really evolved. Um, it used to be much more specific, usually to returning war vets and things right. like that. But it's, it's evolved a lot in, in a good way, so we know more about what can potentially be traumatic. And it includes uh, potentially traumatic events includes psychological, physical, and sexual abuse, community or school violence, witnessing or experiencing domestic violence, national disasters or terrorism, commercial sexual exploitation, sudden or violent loss of a loved one, Refugee or war experiences, military, family-related stressors such as deployment, parental loss, or injury, physical or sexual assault, neglect, serious accidents or life-threatening illness, mm-hmm. and then I added bullying as well because yeah. I've definitely seen that cause it. Um, 
as you can see, there's a lot of different things that yeah. can cause trauma and therefore have the potential to cause PTSD. Not every traumatic incident leads to PTSD, but mm -hmm. it always has the potential to lead right. to that. Um, usually if a, a person is experiencing post-traumatic symptoms, which we'll get to from over a month after, that's when you really start to get worried about PTSD or right. you can meet that diagnosis. Mm -hmm. So one in four high school students was in at least one physical fight. One in five high school students was bullied at school. One in six experienced cyberbullying. 19% of injured and 12% of physically ill youth have post-traumatic stress disorder, which is pretty high. Mm -hmm. And more than half of U.S. families have been affected by some type of disaster at 54%. So as you can see, like tra trauma is a huge risk for a lot of people. And I think it's still, uh, still covered up mm -hmm. far too often. Um, in terms of the, the diagnosis, so we kind of, you know, I tried to go through the five different areas that we kind of look for in mm -hmm. terms of PTSD to, to see if a person's actually struggling with that. The first is exposure to actual or threatened death, serious injury, or sexual violence. So that can be direct. It can be witnessed. It can be vicarious, which means like you're living it through someone you know. Yeah. Um, or it can be repeated or extreme exposure to traumatic details. So think like an EMT, someone yeah. who is exposed to, to a lot of blood or a lot of gore, things like that, repetitively mm -hmm. showing up to those scenes. Yeah. That can do it for sure. Um, second one is intrusive symptoms associated with the trauma. So um, think like memories, dreams, flashbacks. Um, that you can't control. That, mm -hmm. that means they're sort of intruding into your active thought during the day. Yep. Third one is avoidance of traumatic details, so internally or externally. So we're trying to avoid thinking about it. We're trying to avoid places that remind us of it. People that remind us of People it. People that remind us of it. Fourth one is negative changes in thoughts or mood associated with a traumatic event. So, you know, think like can't remember details, blaming yourself, uh, lack of interest in activities, constant negative emotions like fear, horror, anger, guilt, shame, as well as detachment or the inability to experience positive emotions. So that's the fourth one. And the fifth one is noticeable changes in arousal or reactivity. So think someone who's like really irritable, reckless or self-destructive, yeah. um, hypervigilant, so like kind of always on guard, um, issues with concentration and sleep issues. So those are the five kind of things um, we tend to look for with, with PTSD. We're going to get into some suggestions for people who may be struggling with PTSD. You know, disclaimer about mental health tips, again, you know, a lot of these things are, are uh, you know, easy to understand, hard to execute, as we always say. But especially with PTSD, you, know, you really need to be working with someone. Yeah, it is like as much as we want to provide some helpful information, yeah. um, you know, I would caution people to like, you know, think that they can hear anything on this podcast and just go self-treat. Right. You really need to be working with a professional with PTSD. Yep. This is more just to sort of help if you are kind of going through some of these things to understand that, wow, I didn't know that this was something I, I can't. The amount of times I hear people who are just like, well, this was just normal for me for yes. for a long time yeah. and not know that it was something that they could have gotten help with if this wasn't normal. And you could, you could be, you know, something could go differently for you. Totally. So hopefully that's it. But like you said, I think especially with PTSD, working with a trained professional is crucial. Absolutely. And so we, you know, getting connected with a trained professional is, is probably number one step. Um, understanding the percentage of those, you know, uh, with addiction who have underlying trauma, very important. We've mm -hmm. talked about that in past episodes. Uh, if you if you are dealing with substance abuse issues, there's a there may be a chance that you have some trauma in your background. And we went over the different types of trauma. If any of those apply, mm -hmm. you know, think that that might be a cause. There's something that fuels it. Um, you know, we talked about how the definition of trauma has changed over the years. So there's a lot of different examples of what might be traumatic to somebody, and it's not. Contrary to, to a lot of popular belief, it's not weakness if you are affected by trauma. It right. is like luck of the draw that you could send like 10 soldiers into the same battle and, and one or two are going to come out with it. It's not because they're weak. Mm -hmm. It's it's at random. They don't even, we don't even know. No. I don't, I, as far as I know, in terms of the research scientifically, what, who is more susceptible to that no. um, and who isn't. Um, so I got a few, uh, a few uh, suggestions for people, you know, to start with. I would say as hard as it often is, um, to resist this urge, try not to blame yourself. I think that's the number yeah. one thing we see is people blame themselves for the trauma that they went through. Yeah. Try not to isolate and try not to numb, uh, right? So you got to get connected to a therapist, get connected to people in your life. Don't isolate. Don't numb with substance abuse and self-harm. Get help and support instead. Uh, we have a couple helpful, you know, we have uh, a couple helpful numbers. The National Suicide Prevention Hotline is 1-800-273-TALK. The National Helpline for Substance Abuse is 1-800-662-HELP. And there's a crisis text line where you can text uh, the word CONNECT, C-O-N-N-E-C-T, to 741741. 
um, you know, as well as if you're trying to find a therapist, I mean, we like Zencare. Yeah. It's a startup or it was a startup. I don't know how, you know, nationally widespread they are, but I prefer that website for finding a good therapist. Me too. Um, psychology today is kind of a backup. Yeah. Um, so in terms of getting into PTSD or trauma, any suggestions, John, in terms of the people listening, what you think they might uh, be able to do? No, I think you bring up a good, a good point. I think with most people with PTSD, there's some form of shame, some, yeah. some form of blaming for themselves. And I think, you know, so part of treatment is going to be to sort of address that and re reconstruct that narrative that they've been feeding themselves mm -hmm. forever. Um, and addressing sort of, you talked, we've talked about harm reduction in, in past episodes, but, but, but making sure that they're, you know, the way in which they've been either managing it or are thinking that they should manage it is healthy. Um, I think the other thing too, that tends to happen with PTSD is isolation. So really wanted to help them stay connected. Connected. If yeah. there's some sort of a support group that they can go talk to around a similar type of traumatic event, normalization of other people who have gone through that and having a sort of a, a support group for that specifically, mm -hmm. I think that that can be really effective too. And there's plenty of them out there. Uh, we'll put some, we'll put some, you just listed off a bunch of really great resources. We'll put some more in there as well in the show notes as well. Um, but, but connection, I think, you yeah. know, when you get stuck in your own head, reliving this experience over and over and over again, it's hard to establish relationships with, with people without that interfering. Um, so getting people connected, I think, is really huge mm -hmm. and keeping them connected to their support networks. Um, I think, and also, too, you know, some small doses of addressing what happened. I think if you try to go too fast, too furious, I guess, yep. you are likely to sort of re-traumatize or, go, yeah. you know, it, it's not going to be helpful. And I think there's plenty of treatment ways to, um, to address some of this stuff. There's mindfulness. There's... Um, you know, a, a something called EMDR, which is sort of a, a way to sort of address something quickly and then re, and then refocus onto something different mm -hmm. through breathing through a distraction and come back to it. Mm -hmm. um, I think small doses is really key. Um, it's it's a process. It's not a light switch. And I think patience is another thing yeah. too. For I mean, with mental illness and mental health, just in general, patience is is key. But with PTSD, I think especially, it's. It's something that's been obviously traumatic and pervasive, and it takes time for for some of these things to, to work. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you, you mentioned you know not going too fast, uh, to, too quickly, right? Yeah. Um, too much, too fast. Mm -hmm. I think that's really key because you know the we t or I you know I'm not sure about your approach, John. I tend to use uh, more of a narrative based uh, sure. therapy for trauma. Yep. We're not trained in EMDR, but we're right. going to talk about that a little bit because those are the two ones that I see the most is, is more like you know narrative based and then EMDR. Um, but it is really key that people don't get into it too quick because when with a narrative based therapy, you're, you're going to do a trauma narrative at, at some point in the treatment, which means you're going to discuss in vivid detail in terms mm -hmm. of all the sensory information that was going on, what you went through. Yep. You can't get into that quickly that you have to, you know, the first step is to, is what's called seeking safety. So, right. Yeah. So you, the first step with people, and this includes like, you know, if a client comes in, we have to be very careful that they don't, if we ask them about their background, they don't immediately get into what's called a trauma narrative because that can happen. Yep. And I would encourage if people have been through trauma to be cautious about repeating the story to people before you've gotten support and treatment because it can re-traumatize you very easily right. um, until you've been able to to really get yourself in a safe place. So creating a safety plan is usually the first step uh, of most therapeutic approaches for trauma, mm -hmm. but it definitely is for narrative-based therapy. So you create a safety plan. You know, you need to be doing this with someone ideally, but we can go through what's typically on a safety plan. Typically, you're going to, it's a way of planning ahead so you can cope with PTSD symptoms as they come so they don't catch you off guard. You identify and understand your triggers. That's the first step. So understanding the people, places, things, thoughts that yep. tend to trick, can re-trigger or re-traumatize you. You have to understand what those are. Um, that could also be like anniversaries, certain shows, holidays, smells, yeah. anything like that, yep. right? Could really, anything sensory, yep. Absolutely. Um, write down a list of emergency contacts. So family, friends, a therapist. Right. Asking them for help, especially before you know you may be at risk, before you're going somewhere that may re-trigger you or that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Really key that you're proactive. We talk about being proactive a lot with, with mental health. That's definitely key. Um, so those are the first two, I, you know, understanding your triggers and then write down in your list of emergency contacts, um, making sure your meds are on you. If you're on medication, making sure you have access to those mm -hmm. um, is really key. Identifying healthy ways of coping. Typically, we do kind of deep breathing and grounding exercises. Those yep. tend to be the most helpful. Mm -hmm. And then identifying early warning signs, so changes in thoughts, mood, behavior, uh, stuff like that, that might kind of clue you in like, I feel like I'm shifting in the wrong direction. I mm -hmm. may be getting re-traumatized. That's really important. Um, 
The last one on a safety plan is trying to identify what helps you feel safe and in control, whether those are people, places, activities, stuff that's going to make you feel more in control, more empowered, less the opposite. Those are really key. So that's really all we want to get into for now, I think, is just try to make sure safety is your first priority and getting connected to care. After that, in in narrative-based therapy, then you get into remembrance and mourning. So you're kind of grieving the traumatic incident. And then reconnection is the last step. So you're usually taking concrete steps to integrate the lessons from the traumatic experience into your life moving forward, which increases power and control over your future, right? So those are kind of the three steps where it's safety, then remembrance and mourning, and reconnection. EMDR uh, stands for eye movement desensitization and reprocessing therapy. So this is where like in session you would, um, again, we're not trained in this. It's basically where a therapist that you you kind of recite in detail your trauma and a therapist is kind of sh- telling you how where and how to shift your eyes yeah um, and something about uh, the focus on where your eyes are going sort of unlocks your the the part of your brain that want that you know may be re-traumatized by the telling of your story and allows you to sort of relearn how mm-hmm. to understand that story without being as traumatized so we're not licensed in that but basically you kind of relive the traumatic experiences in brief doses while the therapist directs your eye movements right. um, over time, that reduces the impact the memories have on you. Uh, it's particularly helpful for those who struggle to talk about their past experience. So that's definitely I would encourage anyone to look into mm-hmm. that. Uh, an EMDR licensed clinician, yep. Um, you know, if they're looking for help with that. So, any other um, things for the mental health spotlight, John? You think we should cover? Yeah, no, that was good. Okay. Um, we usually give an example of Grim Drive today. You know, for me, I just want to call some attention to mental health clinicians in general, particularly in hospitals, but really everywhere, trying to support so many others while also balancing their own mental health. That's mm-hmm. not an easy thing to do. Um, and I think usually therapists or mental health clinicians are pretty good about understanding the importance of self-care, mm-hmm. but everyone's got their limits. So I think yeah. I, I think it takes a lot of grim drive and a lot of dedication to be able to do that job and keep helping people. Yeah, I agree. Um, quick call to action. Just a, just a reminder to click subscribe on your podcast listening platform. Uh, whether that's, you know, click subscribe on Apple or even on YouTube. You can also click follow on on Spotify mm-hmm. um, and then rate and review the podcast if possible. You can't really do that on Spotify, but, you know, you can definitely do that on, on Apple. We appreciate all the feedback. We're offering a pair of free Celtics tickets or you know, any sporting event uh, to, to a game in 2021 to 2022. Uh, for anyone who uh, writes an honest review for us in the first three months of 2021, you can enter to win these tickets by taking a screenshot of your review and submitting that through the contact us option on our website at grimdrive.com. It's going to ask you for your name and email address and provide you with the option to upload the screenshot. Uh, make sure you take the screenshot of the review before you click submit. That way you, you have it saved in your phone and you can upload that. Um, all of the helpful information and links that we've described today can be accessed in the show notes and on our website at grimdrive.com. Really appreciate everyone listening to the Grim Drive podcast for this discussion about Robin Lehner and PTSD. I will be back next week to talk about Dak Prescott and recovery. Thanks, everybody.